This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson-Weber, and my guest is Bob Falls, Artistic Director at Goodman and the director of the show we're going to be talking about, which is Anton Chekhov's The Seagull. And Bob, I understand that the genesis of this production, at least in part, was your interest in going back to uh, the theories of Stanislavski. And I want to talk about that, but before we dive in, um, for the benefit of listeners who aren't theater insiders, maybe we could, I could ask you to give, you know, the thumbnail sketch of Stanislavski's relationship to Chekhov and why we would be talking about them in the same breath. Sure. Well, you know, Konstantin Stanislavski was the great acting teacher, director, theorist of the late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, who, in my opinion, basically invented modern acting. Everything we now do actually, as Americans, is is basically been influenced by Stanislavski to the point that we wouldn't even notice it, meaning all television acting, all film acting, all stage acting is essentially psychological realism. Mm-hmm. We're basically trying to present uh, real people uh, in real situations uh, in an emotional way. And prior to Stanislavski, who scientifically broke down the process of acting, 19th century acting was dominated by a sort of bombastic, over-melodramatic style. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Stanislavski came along and sort of decided, as an actor, that he could sort of break down the acting process and perhaps make it more realistic. And that, of course, resulted in a number of books that all acting students and all directors have come across at some point called An Actor Prepares and Creating Character. And Stanislavski is generally taught some level of it in most universities and most acting classes you you come across. Well, the, the amazing miracle to me of modern theater was at the same time that Stanislavski in Russia, in Moscow, was sort of developing his theories, teaching, acting, uh, directing. Along came this remarkable writer, Anton Chekhov, uh, a doctor who also wrote over 500 short stories who began writing plays, uh, who died very sadly at the age of 44, Mm. producing about six plays, four of which have been in the international repertoire for 100 years, The Seagull, Uncle Vanya, The Three Sisters, and The Cherry Orchard. And he was writing in a revolutionary, even radical style, again, of of realism, essentially. Uh, Not completely realistic, but essentially, again, people with uh, a psychological realistic background, an ensemble of characters. Um, And this was quite radical at the time because most of the the things you saw on stage in Russia was Pushkin and Shakespeare and Moliere and uh, writers much far less than that. I mean, real melodrama writers and sort of hack writers of the time writing sort of ersatz tragedies. Um, And along came Stanislavski, there with Chekhov, and together uh, they basically produced uh, The Seagull at the Moscow Art Theater as their actual second production. The first was a failure. But they created the Moscow Art Theater, which to this day has been the most influential, one of the most influential theaters in the world. So you had two geniuses who found each other at exactly the right time with exactly the same style, and I think very much invented uh, modern theater as we know it. Mm. 
So then let's talk about, I mean, that was mid-19th century, and now we are kind of well-launched into yeah. the 21st century. And and for you, at least personally as an artist, there was some reason to want to go back to these roots of what you're calling the roots of modern theater. Yeah, well, I, I feel that like most uh, theater people, I mean, I was an acting student in the 1970s. Uh, and I read these books, and I really didn't understand them. And Stanislavski was referred to constantly, and his books were referred to, and these theories were referred to. And I realized, and I absorbed them. Uh, and I would say that for 30 years or more, I've basically used his work. Much of it filtered down through teachers like uh, Lee Strasberg mm -hmm. or um, Bill Esper, uh, Uta Hagen, uh, Sanford Meisner, these are some of the great acting teachers. But the again, United these States. are all uh, several generations ago now. Yeah, well, these are at least, these are about two generations mm -hmm. ago, and they were about a generation or two removed from Stanislavski. Right. They were integrating Stanislavski's techniques in America. They were introducing them, but they were somewhat watered down, and they didn't really get to the heart of it, mm -hmm. I, I think. And that's generally acknowledged by a lot of scholars today. And what, what fascinated me was the discovery in the past decade uh, or more, really the past 20 years since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, that there was a considerable amount of writing and notes and, and uh, even tape recordings of Stanislavski's classes that he was conducting in the late 1930s. He died in 1938. So he was operating very much under, under Stalin, and, and basically the Soviet Union during his late work and for some reason through the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s uh, suppressed his work. Mm. It wasn't political at all, but they just basically threw it in filing cabinets and didn't let anybody see it. It was never published. And since the fall, uh, it, it's become much more accessible, mostly to British scholars and British writers. And I started reading it and realized how much of Stanislavski, I did not understand. Mm -hmm. I had not understood until reading this. So it, it sent me into about a four year, it's been about four years now that I've really been studying Stanislavski. I've really been thinking about him. I've really been trying to get a hold of virtually everything he's written. And I did begin with basically this exploration of Stanislavski's late teachings, which are different than his early teachings, and decided I, I needed to work on this with a great cast. And what would be better than to sort of retrace his steps or literally put myself in his shoes mm -hmm. by directing his first great masterpiece, which was The Seagull. And, and I thought, what a wonderful way not to imitate him, but to sort of try to sort of feel what it was like and, and to work with what I, I consider the later theories and some of the more complex stuff. And that's really what led to my doing The Seagull at the Goodman. So so for you, this was kind of a laboratory to uh, take some of these ideas and see what happened when you were using them in a rehearsal room? Is that well, I would say the rehearsal room was a bit of a laboratory, but I, I sort of bristle at the nature uh, or, or or the sort of word mm. that this is an experimental production in some way, or mm. this is a transitional production for me. I don't think that is at all. I, I think it's very much in line with what I've always been doing. I had a longer rehearsal period than usual. Um, I was exploring some things I've never really worked with in terms of a methodology. And I, but I think ultimately the, the goal was to produce as good a show as I could and mm -hmm. try to be as faithful to Chekhov as I could and put in front of an audience a wonderful cast acting this great play. 
so that that was sort of where we are at by by opening night. I think my use of the word was meant to imply that you were open to making discoveries. Well, absolutely. I'm, although I'm always open to making discoveries, right. you know, right. there's nothing unusual about that. I, anytime you anytime set out I'm to working on a play, a there are yeah. many, many, many discoveries to be found. Yeah. What I did do, which was unusual, was normally when I direct a play, any play, uh, the actors come in with a vast array of of, of experience. Some may have been trained in a certain way. There are certain actors who work from the inside out. Other actors work from the outside in. Some actors are extremely physical. Some actors are extremely cerebral. Some actors may have studied a methodology from Lee Strasberg in the actor's studio. Others may have come from Anne Bogart and Tina Landau's The Viewpoints, uh, for example, of a, of a ladder work. Some people come from a far more experimental base. Some people haven't had any training at all. They're just... <laughs> Natural actors, Instinctive and they actors, just yeah. do it, and they yeah. basically have learned by doing it and and being on stage every night of their lives, mm-hmm. and that's fine. That's that's the normal process, and it's it's joyous to work with a company of actors, and you make a lot of discoveries. But here, what I wanted to do was sort of take a company collectively through a process of analysis and physical work and and getting up on your feet. And, and even earlier, table work where you're reading the play, discussing it, which essentially followed some of Stanislavski's late teachings. And when I say late teachings, it's the stuff from, say, 1935 to 1938, the last three years of his life, that, as I said, is not as well known. Well, the, I mean, for one thing, I think it is said that Americans and maybe many theater artists have misinterpreted Stanislavski. And then the other thing you're suggesting is that there's more than one Stanislavski. There's early Stanislavski and there's late Stanislavski. That's correct. Going to the first point, what are the things, if you can sum up in a not too technical way, what are the discoveries you've made about where typically Stanislavski is misunderstood? What we think of as Stanislavski right now is sort of emotional memory. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest single thing that you, and that was his first, that's, that's sort of the basis of, of, of the New York Actors Studio, right. which is you basically learn, first of all, to sort of liberate yourself and to sort of connect emotionally to the material, but very much through your own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So you remember when your goldfish died and that makes you sad and you use that feeling. That's exactly correct. Right. And, 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 and. But and, and where it's always been wrong a little bit, and everybody, you know, is, is sometimes, it's is sometimes, say, if you have to weep over the death of a beloved uncle, and you haven't lost a beloved uncle, but you have lost a goldfish, you're focusing on losing the goldfish right. to try to bring tears up. Right. Well, in a way, that's sort of silly, because rather than being in the play itself and right. responding to the moment, you're thinking about a goldfish. Right. But in training as an actor, that's something you do. You also do a lot of uh, physical memory of, this was sort of mocked in, in the musical chorus line, uh, where, where you do a lot of uh, drinking imaginary tea or lemonade or vodka, and you try to create the emotional memory of drinking vodka or tea or lemonade to give that impression when you're on stage. And that's, that's valid. You know, that's, that's valid. You know, when you see an actor having a shot of whiskey, a good actor will uh, basically create that experience and will have an emotional memory of that experience. Mm-hmm, right. 
but what's, what happened was it sort of stopped at that. Um, it, it's a combination of the early work of, it's not really the early work, it's actually the first book. And a lot of American acting teachers sort of stopped with emotional memory and with relaxation and getting comfortable in front of an audience. And they didn't delve as much into text analysis, nor did they get as involved with the physical life of a play. Mm. Uh, it, it, it sort of stopped above the neck a lot of acting mm. uh, in the, what we call method acting. And what Stanislavski did throughout his entire career was he, he was trying to create actors who were extremely trained as dancers, as musicians, as people with voice. And, of course, the Russian training, which for the most part is Stanislavski-based, these actors are the best trained actors in the world. And they, they train for five years and they include ballet every day and they dance and they sing and they learn musical instruments and they learn how to analyze a text of a play and they physicalize it. And that was my intention was to sort of try to get beyond the first level of Stanislavski that everybody sort of knows and get into uh, the latter part of it. And in the latter years, he was actually doing, he never neglected the other stuff. I mean, emotional memory and relaxation. It wasn't as if he rejected things. Right. He, 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 you know, built on top. He built on top. Mm -hmm. he, he was constantly himself experimenting and letting go and bringing things back. He was a very, very fluid artist and a mm -hmm. fluid theorist. And, and he actually did not write very well. He was not an intellectual. Most of his books were actually dictated and edited by other people. He was not a, he was not a, he was, he wasn't a writer. He was a talker. Mm -hmm. And, and most of what I discovered was transcriptions of, of tape recordings and transcriptions of class and transcriptions of lectures. And, and I found it all amazing and, and very helpful and very liberating, although it did take me about four years to sort of try to understand it. Uh, I didn't understand it when I first started looking mm -hmm. at it. So I had a lot of help. I had a lot of help. I had a lot of teachers and mentors and, and people who were very experienced both in Moscow, in London, uh, in Germany, who I, I either met with or corresponded with, all the way up to last week when the show was opening. They were really sort of mentoring me in the process. So four years of thinking and educating yourself can be summed up <laughs> in the following three sentences. No, not to be glib about it, but can you... Can you summarize what was the most surprising discovery or the most kind of uh, that most feeling like the, the whole universe shifted for a second and you saw it in this very different way? Well, I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about trying to get a depth and a texture and a richness to the performances. Now, we're very, very lucky, I think, in Chicago because the nature of ensemble acting almost comes secondary to us because actors in Chicago are sort of... Uh, they work together. Most people come out of companies. There, there's really no pressure in Chicago to become a star. It, it simply can't really happen. You have to go to New York or L.A. for that. Right. When you're in New York, say, you see acting that is sort of people acting alone. They're not acting with each other. They're acting not necessarily to get the great reviews and then to become uh, cast on a TV series. But actors in Chicago naturally have an ensemble nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steppenwolf is the finest example of it. A play like Osage County, 
is about as close to the Moscow Art Theater as you can get. A playwright actor wrote it for a company. It was performed by a company that had been working together, many of them, for over 30 years. Right, right. That richness in texture is hard to get in three and a half or four and a half weeks of rehearsal, which is the standard rehearsal in Chicago and most of America. Mm-hmm. I had eight weeks solid and virtually ten weeks of work on the play. The proof is in the pudding. You know, it either works for people or it doesn't work. The intention was to give a good show, and, and hopefully the actors, and I think they do, give sort of uncommonly deep and rich performances. Mm-hmm. A surprise, well, I don't know. You know, it's um, one of the things I did, which is part of the process, was to empower the actors more than I normally would. That Rather than uh, having a stronger authoritarian hand, which most directors have, saying to actors, why don't you stand over there? Where would you like to stand? Or It's a cliche, to, of course, to say a director tells people what to do, or mm-hmm. tells people where to stand or, or moves the play around. You know, one of the, the common phrases that we've all used, and I'm sure all your audience is familiar with, is, is the process of making a play in rehearsal is you block a play. You get on your feet and you block it. Well, just look at that word. You've blocked the play. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Stanislavski did was not block a play, but open up a play, liberate a play, free a play. And what he was trying to do in his latter work was to sort of give the actors full permission to play a play and and to sort of find their way through it without enforcing a sort of pattern of movement or telling people where to go. Mm-hmm. And this production has that. Most nights, there are many, many different things. The cast is free to sort of move as they want. They make their own blocking. They sort of uh, play different moments in a way. And I found it extremely difficult, and I knew this going in, not to say to them, oh, that moment last night was really fantastic. Let's try to repeat that again tonight. Uh, You can't do that. You have to take the assumption that there are a thousand different moments that could happen in a play and not make the choice of one of them. And most plays you ever see, and certainly all the ones I've ever directed, have the illusion of spontaneity, but you're actually repeating every night. You're actually, and the actor's challenge is to be as spontaneous as they can within a very tight structure, uh, an almost uh, an almost straitjacket, actually where you're basically repeating, 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 and trying to give the illusion of spontaneity. Well, in The Seagull, the actors are actually truly spontaneous. They just are. They're responding to what they're getting from their partners. They're responding to what they're getting from the ensemble. They're responding to the way the audience is perceiving the work on a nightly basis or a moment-to-moment basis. And they actually are truly spontaneous. And I would say, for the first time in my life as a director... It's the first and only play that is truly experimental and fluid. Experimental. I hate using that word. I mm-hmm. came back to that. What I meant was it's the only play I've ever done which is truly uh, in the moment all the time and, and, and expressive in a spontaneous way. Well, let's be as concrete as we can about the degrees of freedom. Are you saying that actually nobody ever has to be in any particular spot on the stage stage at any particular time? That's absolutely correct. So there's not a single moment where, uh, for this one moment, you've got to be... Well, there are, yeah, there are logically, Mm -hmm. I mean, but nothing I've ever enforced. I I mean, for example, Constantine, 
when he has his head being bandaged by his mother after his first suicide attempt, has to sit in right. order to have right. his mother And there aren't too many places head. to sit. <laughs> and there aren't that many places to sit right. on the stage. Right. So the logic of the piece is that mm -hmm. the actor will find a place to sit. Right, right. Nina performs a play in the first act, and there's a rock brought on stage as a sort of little stage. And Nina, by necessity, gets up on the rock. But... Those there, are, but those are kind of exceptions. Mm -hmm, so I can't mm -hmm. say there are never any places right. where people are. There are places that are just naturally logical where they sort of have to be at certain moments. Right. But even within that, say if if the actor chose to sit on the floor and have his mother sit next to him and bandage his head, that would be perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. I would not say no, no, no. I liked it much better sitting on the suitcases. Right. right. So I am saying that the actors have the freedom of movement. And how frightened are they of that freedom? Well, they were originally, they were very frightened of it because it's a, it, it's frightening for both director and actor. Uh, and, and for the actors, it's sort of scary to have that amount of freedom. All freedom yeah. is frightening, all freedom yeah. for anybody, particularly people who have not had much freedom. Yeah. So actors who are used to um, the structure of set blocking or set bits of business are naturally quite frightened not to have that. Mm -hmm. So, but the 10 weeks of work was essentially a training ground to give actors a different basis for supporting their work in the text, underneath the text. The actors always know, moment to moment, what it is they're trying to achieve in a scene from a character. Mm -hmm. They know. And what you realize is there are a million ways to achieve a goal. If you want somebody to give you something, you could angrily demand it, you could seduce them into giving it, you could guilt them into giving it to you, you could gently request it, you could violently request it. And in a normal play, the director and the actor make a decision that one of those tactics is the best tactic. Mm -hmm. And in this production, we sort of accept that any of those tactics can work and that those tactics will probably change at every performance, depending on what's happening uh, in the moment with your other actors. Well, let's go back to the textual analysis because that's where my mind is now going. That's the one uh, structure that's uh, immutable. You, you've got these words to say. Oh, absolutely. So, um, and to some extent, I would think that the text does limit what choices make sense. You know, there'll be something you said in Act 1 that means you have some attitude to something or other and you can't, or maybe you can, I don't know, um, reinvent that in Act 2. Well, you can't do something that is not um, based deeply in the character. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so that one of the things that we're also working on for the 10 weeks is really deep character work. So the character is the character. The mm -hmm. character has their desires and their wants and who they are. But, but in actuality, uh, the text allows for, again, a multitude of ways of achieving things. Mm -hmm. And probably a multitude of ways of understanding any particular character. I mean... Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, characters in a play are no different than you and I. You and I are capable of a full range of emotions. And, right. and you could say, Anne, that's really not characteristic of Anne. Right. Or Bob, boy, I didn't know he had that in him. Or I didn't know he would act that way. Right. But and he did. And he so, did. <laughs> so that's I mean, Bob. We, we all know that there's all right. sorts of people who end up murdering their spouses and their next door neighbors go, gosh, I never thought that person would do something like that. He right. was such a nice guy. He right. was such a wonderful dentist to my children. But yet one night he goes crazy and he stabs the kids. And 
that actually, I believe, exists in all of us. I really do. I think we could all possible things like that. We're also possible of enormous acts of generosity and love. And actually, those two things can exist in, a, in an individual. So I would say, why should characters in a play be any different than you or I uh, in terms of what they might or might not do? So you have to analyze a script with the openness that these characters could do anything. But of course, it's sort of, there's a sort of a stricture or structure that kind of holds it together. So what you're, what, what I'm saying is an actor will never, it would be narcissistic. It would be selfish if an actor suddenly just starts doing something that they've never done before. That's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of improvisation I'm talking about. When the actors are doing something, it is within a highly structured, disciplined way that allows them to improvise emotionally. Mm -hmm. I would think that as an actor, over time, over 10 weeks of rehearsal and then, was it, four weeks of performance, yeah. certain things start to seem like the best solution to the actor. Yeah, well, you have to stop that. Okay, interesting. So you can't do that. That's, that's, it's, it's not, no, it, it's people who do that are only thinking like actors. Mm. Nobody, you know, it's, it's, we're not thinking quickly enough to go, that's the best solution. We just do, we just act, we respond, mm -hmm. uh, in the moment. Uh, what you're talking about is an actor who's pre-planning a result in order to affect an audience. I will do this to make them laugh, or I will try to do this to make them cry. And you go, it doesn't matter. All you, all, your only responsibility is to tell the truth in the moment. Actually, I'm not sure that is what I was saying. And, and I'll try to illustrate it using a different art form. If you're learning a piece on the piano and you try it a different tempi and you try it, you know, with a different phrasing and there, sometimes there will be a feeling when you say, Oh, that's it. That's what this is about. I understand it now. And it's coming from the text. It's saying, this is, this is the meaning of this, right? There now. is no meaning to anything. There is no meaning. It doesn't mean that. It's, it's different than music. There is no one set meaning to any moment uh -huh. in play. It, there just isn't in this form of working. You know, textual analysis, what you're talking about is sort of the death of the text, which is you sort of read something, you study something, you decide what it is, and then you all go as a company at it to achieve that. Mm -hmm. That's what you're talking about, which is the death of a moment. It just, it's dead theater. It creates dead theater. What mm -hmm. I'm talking about is to really try to create live theater, which is to recognize that all moments in the text have a variety of meanings and it's not our responsibility to deliver metaphor or to deliver meaning our our responsibility in this particular work is to be alive in the moment to what is going on among human beings and that's very different it's, well that's very interesting it's challenging to me i have to say because there's you know there are times when you see for instance an interpretation of a play that just feels dead wrong it's just like that missed the point. That's wrong. Yeah, that's because they didn't do any of this work. Uh -huh. That's because they had three and a half weeks of rehearsal, and they're making stupid choices that are not based on the kind of work that Stanislavski is encouraging. That happens all the time. That's because a director has put a stupid interpretation on the play and has made the actors follow that stupid interpretation, uh -huh. you know, and so therefore it looks wrong. This is the opposite of that. This is the absolute opposite. The reason that happens is, is because the director has 
in an authoritarian way, decided that not only the full play should be played like this, but moments should be played like this. Right. And the actors either reluctantly, reluctantly or, or uh, uh, embracingly go along with that. That's what happens. That's why you see that happen. Is it, has it been your experience that there's there's some nights when you say, oh, that just all really worked, and other nights when you say, eh, maybe we didn't get there tonight? And if so, what's the difference? No, no, never. No, never. And that's been a shock to me and a surprise to me. So there's a surprise. It's it's hard. It's hard sometimes. I mean, there are moments. There, absolutely. There, there are, I mean, you have to realize that the, the, the audience is only seeing the play once. Right. That's the experience of the audience. Right. They, they, are, they, are, they, they see the play once. There's no doubt that when I see the play, there are moments when I say, oh, you know, that moment for me was a little better last night. Uh-huh. But that's that's meaningless, what I think. Right. All that means something is were the actors alive and fresh and real? And did the audience perceive it that in way. a satisfactory manner? Right, right. You know, so it doesn't matter to me, for example, whether, you know, the famous opening lines of the play are, you know, Medvedenko says, why are you wearing black? And Masha says, I'm in mourning for my life. I'm unhappy. Well, there are nights when he comes out and he's angry. And he says, why are you wearing black? Mm. And she equally angrily responds, I'm in mourning for my life. I'm unhappy. But, you know, there's another moment where they, they come off the bench and he goes, why are you wearing black? And she says, oh, I'm in mourning for my life. I'm unhappy. Uh-huh. So both those both those are absolutely justifiable because they're they're playing in an alive way, and in a normal they have play, to do with each other. Yeah, they're coming off of each other. They're right. responding to each other. They have to respond to each other. Right. Right. And an example of a dead theater moment would be if I said, you know what, I prefer it angry, and that may be my preference, and that may be my interpretation as a director, but ultimately. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. And what it does instantly, you realize, is it denies the actor their art. Mm-hmm. It denies them their art. Mm-hmm. So if you can encourage their art, why not do that instead of literally blocking them? This this brings us right to um, a point that I uh, wanted to, to discuss. Before this interview, I talked to a very talented young director of my acquaintance, and I said, so... If you could ask Bob Falls one question about Stanislavski, what would it be? And he said, what I struggle with is how you, there's a very, the the Stanislavski method seems very uh, personal to the actor. It's a way for each actor to approach their own character and their own performance. He said, what I don't get is how you then create a group process that takes into account each of those individual processes. He's, he's, He's basically stuck as I was. In very early Stanislavski, mm-hmm. that is selfish. It's all about me, 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 me. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling that. I'm going through that. Right. That's early, early Stanislavski. The later stuff is all about you actually make decisions together. You actually, as a group, sit down at the table and you analyze the text and you go through a scene and you literally decide my character wants this at that moment. And your character wants this at that moment. And everybody collectively analyzes the play, which is the underneath structure. Now, you have to forget about that when you're playing, the same way an actor learns their lines, and then they're just second nature. Right, right. You learn your intentions. 
from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. You study the actions from moment to moment, and then they become second nature to you. So you're actually playing together. Mm -hmm. And what your friend is talking about is exactly what I thought until four years ago, was that the method, which is actually the American way as opposed right. to the Interpretation. system, mm -hmm. is, is sort of narcissistic and selfish. And, and it is on some level. If you don't go into the latter work, if you don't go into the sense that what Stanislavski is actually doing is truly creating an ensemble mm -hmm. and truly allowing the actors to play together in the most generous, the least selfish way. And I've been a little unfair to my friend because what he also said is in a five-week rehearsal period. Absolutely. And and what I think you've said already is that essential to making this work at its highest level yeah. is a, a vast amount of rehearsal. Well, Stanislavski was working. Stanislavski actually, at the end of his life, never produced a play. He was working on his plays for two years and three years. So mm -hmm. his work was spread out over two to three years. Now, that's not eight hours a day mm -hmm. the way you have when you rehearse for either five weeks or ten weeks or two weeks. Right. But even today... Uh, throughout most of Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, yeah. uh, Russia in particular, nobody would ever think of putting a play on after five weeks of rehearsal. That would just, well, they would laugh that they would look at you like you're crazy. Right, right. Even 10 to 12 weeks is way too, you can't, they would say you can't do the work in that time. Right. right. So I, I think that, yeah, in fairness to me, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying exactly what your friend, the director said, which is, you simply can't do this kind of work without a, a significantly added rehearsal period. You just can't do it. When the Molly Theater were here at Chicago Shakes, um, I talked to, well, it wasn't Lev Doden because he was sick, but his assistant. And she said on stage to an audience, she said, you know, it is inconceivable to us that you would, to us to put a play on after two years of rehearsal feels kind of daring. Like we're probably not very far yet, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lev Doden is, is, is a friend of mine. And Lev Doden is one of the great influences professionally and personally on me in my mm -hmm. life. I mean, I, I saw Lev Doden. This is, it's connected. I saw Lev Doden's work in 1986 and it changed my life. Uh, I, I consider him one of the great directors, if not the greatest director in the world in many ways. He is the legitimate heir to a Stanislavski tradition. Mm -hmm. And when you see his work, you're not looking at narcissistic uh, method acting. You're looking at, nor are you looking, you're looking at very rich, complex lives that also the director brings a strong sense of visual world, the lighting, the right. sound, the right. costumes. There is an interpreter there. I mean, right. he's working with actors in a Stanislavskian tradition, but he's also making theater, mm -hmm. uh, which is also part of, you know, again, when one thinks about, about uh, uh, directing from Stanislavski's point of view, you think only about the actors. But Stanislavski was also concerned with richness. I mean, light, sound, costumes. All the language of theater. As am I. Mm -hmm. Although in this production, I wanted to strip it down a little bit more mm -hmm. and focus on the actors. Mm -hmm. But Lev Doden changed my life in 1986. And I went back to uh, Russia three times in a year to watch him work with his students. And I was watching him work with his students using all the things I'm talking about. Now, of course, it was all in Russian. Lev Dodin does not speak Russian. The students, uh, English, uh -huh. excuse me. I didn't speak Russian. So I didn't really understand what I was seeing. I, right. I, I was impressed. 
but it was mystifying to me. Right. I didn't know what it was. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And he would try to explain it to me, and even him trying to explain it to me did not make sense. Uh-huh. And that's that's what's interesting is it took me 25 years virtually to finally understand what it was he was doing. Uh-huh by my access to all these papers published in English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you didn't have the benefit. There, there are two things I think about. One is that they have the benefit of this company co- company that's existed for decades. Yeah. Um, they also are Russian, and that's something I'm interested in talking about in the one minute we have left, which is to what extent does being American create impediments to understanding Russian sensibility and these both the directorial methods and the the writing itself and what does it bring to it that might be a gain well the gain is is that you're playing for an american audience not a russian audience i'm sure that you know it's that it's sort of uh a play a great play is a great play is a great play it doesn't matter whether it's you know a shakespeare it's it's sort of like saying well you know do 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 british audiences understand shakespeare better because they're british and i would say no i think americans are entirely capable of doing shakespeare better than the english uh i really do I would say the experience of seeing the seagull in Russian with a Russian cast is a completely different experience than seeing the seagull with an American cast for an American audience. Right. You can't even try. I mean, one of the problems I've had with virtually all the Chekhov I see is that you see a company of actors trying to imitate Russians. They're trying to do fake Russian behavior. Uh, and, and in this production, and in any production I would do of Chekhov, I, I, it is an interpretation, you, but it, you're taking the seagull, a very Russian play, but a play that also, I think, has great resonance for an American. For anybody, right, right, for a human being. Well, we've overstayed our uh, time, and I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us about this. Well, thank you, Anne.